listening to First Church Charlotte. Man, it's good to be in the house of the Lord. I was, well, thank you. I love you too, darling. Anybody who's going to miss me, they get love. That's all I have to say. Now, Bishop did a great job as we expected. And uh, it's amazing to have him available to step in a short moment. Uh, I was quite sick, and I won't give you any details other than quite sick. And you don't want the details. And uh, however, I've been five days completely symptom-free. So all of you who have already hugged, uh, just consider yourself infected uh, with love. Uh, so five, good to see you, bro. Been a minute. Uh, glad you're here. Uh, so it's been, it's, it's, I'm moving on past that. Yes. All right. Let's see here. Um, I am starting a uh, disaster relief ministry slash small group. And we will be prepping to go to uh, storms that hit the coast. I have been overexposed to storm, storms because I have family in South Florida and I have family in Southwest Louisiana. So anywhere from Texas Gulf Coast all the way around up to past us, we very rarely get hit, but I guess it's possible, um, up the eastern seaboard, we are surrounded by storms, and we're in Fortress Charlotte. <laughs> we almost never get storms this far inland. What we get is the remnants of storms. We get tropical tropical storms. We don't get hurricanes, and I'm quite thankful for that. But I feel like the Lord has given us a place where we can help others, and I have been looking for a hands-on ministry that we can involve all of our own hands in. Um, we support uh, many, many ministries. We send money all over the world. Uh, that's a good thing. But if you just open your wallet, you're not changed by uh, sending money. You're changed by going. And I think there's something powerful that happens when our hands and feet are involved. And so this winter and coming spring, we're going to be prepping. We have some equipment to prepare. I have uh, the first trailer that has to be, there's some work that has to be done to it. And so I'm starting some work, work groups um, that if you would like to be a part of that, let me know. We'll probably have um, no more than one Saturday a month where we would meet uh, and have a kind of a task-based uh, plan of proceeding to finish getting the equipment upfitted. So by next June, uh, the start of storm season, we would be ready to uh, help and assist and go down and spend uh, a handful of days in these storm hit communities and helping the churches there, uh, help set up FEMA, what they call them FEMA pods, uh, points of distribution uh, at churches, help get churches ready. Um, it's something that the Lord has put in my heart. I know many of you would love to be involved in it. And so I am giving you that opportunity. Many of you have a lot of talents and skills. There are various types of ways you could be involved. We will need people who 
stay here and simply work phones to call and try to connect with uh, churches and organize uh, the like. We will have people that are able to work on our equipment here to help us get equipment ready. And then we'll have people who are able to go uh, to be involved in one of three different types of um, work we do on the site. If you're interested in this at all, um, send me an email and I will uh, try to create a Slack group so we can begin organizing and planning uh, together for this. Uh, email address is my name, nathanelms at gmail.com, which is easy to remember, or pastor at First Church CLT. Uh, so, all right, my title today is simply this. Um, this is who I am. That's my title. This is who I am. And I am using that title to describe what the Lord says to the house of Israel uh, in Ezekiel chapter number 36. We will begin reading at verse number 22. Before I start reading, let me just say, if you're visiting with us today for the first time, thank you for taking a chance on us. We know visiting a new church can be a, a kind of a, a new thing. Uh, thank you for taking a chance on us. We believe God has something very rich for you, and we want to see you grow in the name of the Lord. Can the church say amen? Verse 22, therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord, I do not do this for your sake, O house of Israel, but for my holy name's sake which you have profaned among the nations wherever you went, and I will sanctify my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst, and the nations shall know that I am the Lord when I have hallowed you, when I have made you holy. That's what he's saying. When I have made you holy before their eyes. And then 24 and 25 he tells them that he will gather them from all around the world. He will cleanse them. Verse 26, he says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit, notice capital M-Y, capital S. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. Verse 28, he will return them to the promised land. 29, he will deliver them from uncleanliness. Um, he will pro make provision for them. He will protect them. 30, he will bless them. Uh, 31, uh, you'll, they'll be turned away from their evil ways and they will be have hearts turned toward the, the Lord. Verse 32, not for your sake do I do this, says the Lord. Let it be known to you. Let it be known to you. And so I want to talk about something that we forget about a lot in serving the Lord. And I want to begin by kind of giving you the Cliff Notes version of how religious people and people who have at one time in their life been religious, we tend to think. This is a flawed view, but this is how religious people tend to think. I want to clarify, this is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the religious impulse within the human heart. It goes like this. 
There are good things you can do, and there are bad things you can do. And if you do good things, then you are good people. And if you do bad things, you are... You're the devil. If I do good things, then I am good. If I do bad things, then I'm bad. If I do good things, then I'm a good person, and God will save me. Why will he save me? Because I'm a good person, and I'm gooder than you. Elbow your neighbor. Say, I'm gooder than you. Um, So uh, if I'm a good person and I do good things, do you see, then um, God will save me. Why will he save me? Because I'm good. Yes, this is how the confused, deceived, religious mind thinks. I am good. Therefore, having accomplished goodness, I belong with the good people and God saves me. On the other hand, you dirty, rotten sinners, you know who you are. You low down, dirty, rotten sinners. You are bad people and you deserve bad things in bad places. Uh, thus into the story. Now let us take up an offering and be dismissed to go eat dinner. This is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is a very misleading doctrine that will create deep confusion in people who otherwise should have served God in worship Instead, they are trying to earn salvation. What this does is creates a false deity, a false God, a false salvation. And we then save ourselves by what? Being good enough for God. This is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want to try to break that frame in your mind and give you a different frame. There is none who is good, no, not one. I want you to say that. Say it with me. There is none who is good, no, not one. When I do good things, it doesn't make me good. Now, that's hard for you because many of you have spent many years being religious, not being gospel founded. You've been religious. You haven't been gospel-founded. There is none who is good. No, not one. And when I do good things, it doesn't make me good. Now, you're asking yourself, oh my, if you don't threaten people, they won't do good. You are thinking just like a Pharisee. You have fallen into the Pharisee deception where what people need is regulation and threat. And if they don't do good, then they're going to bust it wide open. And then you, having appropriately scared yourself, you try to do good, else you find judgment. This is not what Jesus Christ has made possible. This is not the New Testament promise. So let me take you back, and we want to be gospel-focused, not religious, okay? There is a difference. We don't want to fall into the deception of the Pharisee, nor do we want to fall into the deception of the Sadducee. Okay, stay with me. Here is a more gospel-founded way 
to see things. There is nothing I can do to be good enough to earn salvation. Do you see? There is no action I can do where God owes me anything. If there were an action I could do to make myself good, then salvation would be my accomplishment, not God's accomplishment. This is why Pharisees always want you to see them do good. That's why Jesus spent the longest sermon of his ministry telling people, don't be like the Pharisees. Don't pray where people can see you. Don't give alms where people can see you. Because to the Pharisee, they're trying to be good enough to earn salvation. And there is no way that I can ever be good enough. It leads, my actions like that lead to vanity. Here's the problem with religious vanity. It divides the house. Religious vanity divides the house. And now you have good people and bad people. And that's not the gospel. None of us are good. We now have people who it is okay to do life with and people it's not okay to do life with. The truth is, none of us are good. You now have people who deserve the church to pray for them when they're sick and people who do not deserve the church to pray for them. You see how we've divided the house of grace. This is the deception of the Pharisee. It ends up where if I'm good, then I am a good people. And as a good people, God saves me. This is not how it works. There are no good people. I'm repeating myself, I know, but I can feel some of you digging in your heels. But if you if you do this, then people will have no reason to serve God. Stay with me. Stay with me. The point of the gospel of Jesus Christ is none of us were good, so Christ became our goodness. None of us were righteous, so Christ became our righteousness. We, having been unworthy and yet accepted, are invited to serve God with our lives as an act of love and invite others. We have freely received, and now what we do, we freely give, do you see? We serve God out of love, out of devotion, not out of duty, not out of obligation. We are no longer slaves. We are now the children of God. We are now the friends of God. And everything we do is an act of either love or worship. It's an act of love or testimonial worship. I'll give you two passages. Jesus says, if you love me, if you love me, verb, if you love me, keep my commandments. Not if you want to make sure you don't bust hell wide open, keep my commandments. If you love me, it is a love story from beginning to end. I serve the Lord because while I was yet a sinner, Christ died for me. I love the Lord because while I was dead in trespasses and sins, uh, he loved me. Do you see? The least I can do because of his goodness is open my soul and throw my heart at God and say, I choose you. So it can be love or what? It can be testimony, worship, testimony. Let men, what? See your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. 
Everything we do succeeds or fails at being worship, full stop, period. When I turn away from sin, it doesn't make me good enough to be saved. It is worship unto the Lord. Whatever I offer, it doesn't make me good enough for salvation. It is worship. This is how I tell God I love you. I turn away from the things of the flesh. I turn away from the desires of the flesh. I turn away from the temptations of the flesh, and I say within my spirit, I love you. Everything you do in your life, every prayer you pray, it succeeds or fails in worship of what? God, the only one who is good. So, all right. The Lord wants to establish something before the house of Israel, and he says this. He repeats it. He basically tells them, I am going uh, to bring you back to the land of promise. You are where you are because of judgment. You are where you are because you have embarrassed me. You have lived in an embarrassing manner, and you have reaped the crop of an embarrassing uh, behavior, uh, lifestyle, etc. This is where you are, but I'm not leaving you here. I am going to redeem you. I'm going to take you back to where I intended you to be. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to keep you. I'm going to provision you. I am going to protect you. And I want you to know I'm not doing it for you. I'm doing it for me. Why would the Lord say that? Why would the Lord say that? Uh, Because if we uh, we're always tempted to turn the heart of worship that's directed toward God, we're always tempted to turn it back on ourselves. This is the Lucifer trap. This is what Lucifer does in uh, his role of orchestrating the host of heaven in worship toward the Lord. Um, He turns the worship toward God back to himself. And uh, he's like, yes, the Lord is great, but you know, have you looked at me? I'm I'm, I'm not looking bad. I mean, yeah, the Lord is good, but you know, (laughs) uh, I'm the best of you all. And he seeks to elevate self rather than God. Uh, This is the Lucifer way. This is exactly what he does uh, to Eve in the garden, he doesn't say, hey, serve me. He doesn't say, fall down on your face and worship for me. He tried that with Jesus because Jesus actually loved the world and Lucifer sought to trade spiritual order for a pretend salvation. That happens in other ways. Don't have time to preach about that. Uh, But with Eve, he simply gets her self-interested. He doesn't say, serve me. He doesn't say, you know, paint the town red, live, do crazy things, uh, obey the lusts of your flesh. He doesn't do that. He simply gets her uh, self-interested. If you eat of this, you will be like God. God's trying to keep you down. This is the Lucifer path. It's not witchcraft. Uh, It could be if that's the way someone went, but that's not the success of hell. Very few people are attracted by that. He doesn't try to get you to read a satanic Bible. Some people do, but that's not really, uh, that's a tiny, tiny percent. What he really wants you to do is just exalt yourself, do you see? Put yourself at the center of things. Uh, Ask God to serve you rather than you serve God. Do you see? And so uh, here he has um, he has uh, convinced a whole people, a whole house of Israel that had been chosen by God in covenant partnership to do something for the Lord. From beginning of Genesis all the way to the end of Revelation, God always intended to include more people than just the house of Abraham. Uh, 
I want you to see this. This matters. Why does this matter? From the beginning all the way to the end, it included more than just the house of Abraham. If you read the covenant with Abraham, it goes like this. The first few phrases are what God's going to do for Abraham. The last phrase is what Abraham is going to do for God. And if you follow, if you, I'll be with you, I'll protect you. Um, uh, wherever you place your feet, I will give it to you. And then the Lord says this, through you shall all the nations of the world be blessed. This is God saying, look, I have a plan for the world, but I need you. I choose you. I covenant partner with you to be part of my plan, my mission in, in the world. Do you see? Now, if you go all the way to the end of the story in Revelations, what do you see? You see the same thing. God's plan was always including the whole world because you will see a great host gathered from every tribe. Somebody say yes. Every tribe, every kindred, speaking every language around the throne, all what? Redeemed by the blood of the land. All joining together in the great worship of God, crying, holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. They're joining in worship with God. This is your takeaway. This is the big idea. God was always including people beyond the covenant. He wanted to help the, the people of the covenant to help him bless the whole world. Now, the house of Israel lost this, and what they did is they individually and collectively failed to understand that the covenant was for God's purpose, not for their purpose. And what they did with the covenant, uh, this is a whole multi-month Bible study, but what they did with the covenant is they turned it inward. To, and the result of that is always religious vanity and isolation. And so rather than having a blessing effect on the world, they arrived at a point of such exclusion and isolation that by the time of Jesus, when he came and walked the land, of Palestine, they would not even by law allow themselves to have relationships with unbelievers. In fact, in Acts chapter number 10, where Peter comes to the house, having been directed by the Spirit of the Lord, when Peter comes to the house of Cornelius the centurion, what's the first thing Peter says to him? Peter says, it's not even lawful for me under Jewish law to be here with you. What was God's purpose? That through them all the nations of the world would be blessed. What did they do? They took the covenant to serve themselves. This all this is the Pharisee trap. It always leads to isolation and it always leads to delusions of self-righteousness. Stay with me. Okay, we're going to talk about the deception of the Sadducee in a, in a minute, but I want you first to understand, since we're all religious people, the great risk of the deception of the Pharisee. We are good, therefore we are saved. This is the deception of the Pharisee. Jesus came and he rebuked this way of uh, being. He stood before the temple and he basically said, God is going to destroy this, this whole way of worship. God is going to destroy this. And they said, blasphemy. 
But he was right. He prophesied that it would be destroyed. Further, he goes in as his last sermon to be preached inside the gates of that whole place of former, former uh, place of holy worship. He stands in there, looks around him. Where is he? He's in the court of the Gentiles. He sees it's empty of Gentiles and it's full of conveniences for the Jews. Convenience for the Jews. Selling uh, animals and sacrifices for money. He grabs a rope and he fashions a whip. And then he begins to drive the animals out of the court of the Gentiles. When people protest, he turns to the money changers' tables and he flips the money changers' tables. And what does he do? He preaches his last sermon in the house. He had taught in synagogues. He had spoke in the court of the Gentiles before. Now he is preaching his last message. And what is his last message? Silence. No, that wasn't his last message. (laughs) This place was meant to be what? A house of prayer for who? All people. Say it with me. All peoples. But you have made it into a den of thieves. And he walks out of that temple, and he will never come back into that place. He also symbolically, in this time, uh, he, he curses the fig tree that wasn't even in season. What's the point of cursing a fig tree that wasn't in season? The fig tree, as if to say what it was supposed to com- accomplish, it never accomplished. Even in its season, it did not bring forth fruit. Do you see what's happening? You were always meant to be more than just self-serve religion. You were always supposed to be a blessing to the nations. Through you were all the nations of the world supposed to be blessed. But what have you done with the story? You have excluded outsiders until it is not even lawful for you to eat dinner with them. Remember Acts 10? You can't even eat dinner with them. You instead have used all of this as isolation and spiritual vanity, and you have severed all relations with outsiders. This is the deception of the Pharisee. I can make myself good enough where I am saved. It is a self-serve salvation, but it's really self-serve deception because there's none who is good, and I cannot earn it. I can only be a worshiper because God is seeking such to worship him in spirit and in truth. So he walks out of that house in the day of this, um, the time of this temple is coming quickly to an end. It will be destroyed. And the Lord will become the temple that the temple failed to be. I want to say it again. God himself will become the meeting place. Christ will become our holy of holies, our sacred 
inter, uh, spiritual intersection where we are able to host and he becomes uh, the Holy Spirit that inhabits a new temple, a temple of her heart. This is what Ezekiel is talking about. He's talking about covenant and he's talking about a new day of Holy Spirit. I want to say it again. He's talking about covenant and he's talking about a new day of Holy Spirit. Now, before I get into Holy Spirit, I want to uh, talk about the two great deceptions that are so strongly told in the Gospels. There's two great deceptions that are so strongly shown in the Gospels that they almost become characters of their own. The first deception we've already talked about, the deception of the Pharisee. Where does it lead? It leads to uh, religious vanity. It leads to religious isolation. And what it does is it ends all interaction with people beyond the circle of the approved. It's like a religious person who no one in their family will speak to them anymore because they made everybody hate them. Just like the house of Israel, you have embarrassed God. Mm, it's quiet now. You have embarrassed God. You have carried God in a way that is an embarrassment to God. This is what God says to the house of Israel. I will redeem my name, and I'm going to change your heart. I will redeem my name. I'm not doing this because you deserve it. You don't deserve it. Why would he say that? You broke the covenant. Remember the covenant? What do they do? They take the animals of sacrifice. They pass between them, and they say, this wasn't just Israel. This is all the nations of the time. They go through this covenant, and they say to whatever gods they swear by, whatever gods they believe in, what do they say? If I break this covenant, may my God do to me what we have done to these sacrifices. That's an ancient covenant. And the house of Israel did it, and they said in covenant, if we do not follow, follow this covenant, may God do to me what we have done to these dismember animals. But God does not do that to them. He judges them, but he does not end them. I'm thankful for the grace of God. He judges them. He reproves them, but he does not end the story of their hope. And so you don't deserve it, Israel. You broke the covenant. You embarrassed me. You have profaned my name among the nations. You have said you were my people, but you haven't been my people. You have lived as though you serve other gods. You have worshiped other gods. You have used even my name in a wrong way. You have embarrassed my name, but I'm going to redeem you. But I want you to know I'm not doing it because you deserve it. I'm doing it because it's who I am. The Lord looks at your worst sin and says, I'm going to save you because this is who I am. I'm going to pay your debt because this is who I am. I want to speak to everyone here today who wonders if you're good enough for God to save you. I want to settle the issue. No, you're not good enough. You're never going to be good enough. He's going to save you anyway. Why? Because that is who he is. This is powerful because the enemy's always going to come to you and tell you why you're not good enough. The enemy comes to me, tells me how I've failed, tells me how I've missed the boat, tell me how I'm good enough, but I have an answer for the devil. Yes, Mr. Devil, I'm not good enough. And God's not saving me because I'm good enough. God's saving me because there's a Redeemer in the heart of God, and He is going to do it because it's who He is. 
The most powerful thing you can do to shut the mouth of the accuser in your life is agree with him and say, you're right, I'm not good enough. It's not about me. This is who God is. Noah found grace in the eyes of God. God was looking to save. I want you to know God's still looking to save. He's looking for someone who will bow their knee, someone who will humble their heart and say, oh God, would you save me? Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on me. And the Lord stops. And in one moment, he changes everything. I don't deserve it exactly. It is who he is. We live in a day, uh, well, let me, let me just real quick talk about the deception of the Sadducee. Um, uh, why are the Sadducees talked about much less than the Pharisees in the Bible? Um, because Jesus uh, had much less interaction with community sinners than he did with religious types. All communities have, you know, heathens among us, so to speak. People who they want to party, they want to have a good time. We call them hedonists. Uh, we call them party animals. We call them good time people, whatever you want to say. I'm about to show my age if I keep it up, so I better stop right now. Um, they go to the clubs. They're out. They're always, you know, looking to have a good time. Um, these are not the kind of people who journey out of the cities to hear a religious speaker talk. Um, but Jesus sought them out. I want to say it again. These people do not seek Jesus out, but Jesus finds a way to seek them out. Jesus loves you. Amen. If you're not where you need to be with God, I want you to know God's looking for you. He's seeking you out. But religious people came to Jesus, and so we have a lot more examples of the deception of the Pharisee than we have in the New Testament of the deception of the Sadducee. But here's the interesting thing. The Sadducees are unique in that they did not believe in the resurrection. They believed all there was to life was this life. This sounds like the exact same philosophy as a hedonist. Live now, party now, because this is all there is. Now, you can be an organized hedonist and be chasing money and experiences, traveling the world and jet setting, or you can be an unorganized hedonist going from one party house to another, uh, losing jobs and breaking relationships. It does not matter. It's the same philosophy, and it goes like this. This life is as good as it gets. Believe it or not, you can be a religious hedonist where you go to church, but you don't live as though there's anything beyond this life. You live as though this life is all there is. And you'll always notice that one of the signs of that is you'll struggle to have an open wallet toward the things of God because your money judges you. And your money shows you you really don't believe in eternity, but you do believe in the here and now. The, he, the Sadducees were religious hedonists. They did not believe in a resurrection. They believed the only thing available to them was their best life now. And so they lived their best life now. This made them morally, how shall we say, flexible. Uh, they could, that most of the Herod, uh, Herodians, the people who supported Herod, who was a horrible person, an absolute 
absolutely horrible, evil, evil person. They supported Herod, and they justified it by saying, well, you know, you just got to roll with what you got. Sure, he's the devil, but he's our devil. I know some church people like that. And um, we'll just go with him. But uh, John the Baptist stands against him. They don't join him. They're quiet about his evil. You understand what I'm saying? Uh, Because they are Sadducees. They believe this life is all there is. All you need to compare to the person, the Pharisee, the deception of the Pharisee, I can be good enough where God owes me salvation, and therefore I'm going to show everybody how good I am. And the deception of the Sadducee, there's no judgment to come. There's no answer for my actions. There is no final arbiter of my acts. I'm just going to live my best life now. There's no moral code. They're both deceptions, and they are the two great deceptions that Jesus lived his ministry in opposition to. It's the same thing we have now. On one hand, we have the temptation of being the kind of believers who misunderstand the gospel, and what we do is we isolate the promises of God from the world, or we can be the kind of person who doesn't really believe that there's life after this life, and we just want to have our best life now, a hedonist. If you have a hedonist and you have a Pharisee, you really don't need a sinner because you've already got a double handful. Man, that's some fine preaching. I have to give myself an amen. The Lord says, I'm going to come and I'm starting over. This is what happens when he rebukes the temple, when he drives them out, when he curses the fig tree, when they crucify him. And he says, crucify, destroy this temple in three days. I'll raise it up again. The temple is moving. No longer is it going to be in this place that you have turned into a den of thieves. It's now going to be your heart. Will the Lord start this new day of a new temple with the same signs that he started the day of the old temple? Well, actually, let me tell you the story of how he started the old temple. And I'm almost done. Musicians, you can come. Um, He started the old temple like this. Solomon had built a temple. And on the day of dedication, there were 120. Somebody say 120. 120 priests that were in the house, in the temple, and there they were going to, after the dedication, uh, step out into the courts and minister to the people. You couldn't fit all the people, the millions of people in the temple, but you had 120 priests at the dedication. They were going to move out and minister to the people. And so Solomon prays a prayer. What is the prayer Solomon prays? He asked the Lord this question, will God, will the Spirit of the Lord dwell with men? He asked the Lord this question, and the Lord answers the question that Solomon asks, how does he do it? Fire falls from heaven. Fire. Somebody say fire. Fire falls from heaven. And it, it, it consumes the sacrifice. And the 120 priests are so overwhelmed by the Spirit of the Lord that they cannot speak. All they can do is babble. They cannot speak. They cannot speak. That's the dedication of Solomon's temple. 
Will the Lord introduce this new era where you are going to become the temple of the Holy Ghost? Will he also place a stamp of authority upon it in the same manner? Actually, I'm so glad you asked. Yes, he will. On the day of Pentecost, they have been gathered together and for 10 days, what have they been doing? They've been tarrying, waiting to be filled with the Holy Ghost. Somebody say Holy Ghost. They have been waiting for 10 days. And uh, the Bible says suddenly. I love how the Bible can make you wait 10 days and then say, all right, time to get busy. Suddenly, the Holy Ghost falls among them. And what is what happens? Fire falls. The same sign that happened in Solomon's temple. How many were in the house where it happened? 120. Are you noticing some themes here? If you don't know this, maybe you don't know as much as you think you do. Uh, <laughs> oh, you might be, maybe you should study it a little bit. That's some great homework, right? 120 on the, de- Solomon, the dedication of Solomon's temple, 120 on the day of Pentecost, fire falls. What happens? They cannot minister. They open their mouth and tongues speak from them. It's like a babbling. Uh, the prophet Joel describes it as stammering lips and another tongue. This is what the Bible will call call utterance 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 the spirit of the lord speaking through you praying in a language you don't understand giving you a testimony you can't interpret but nonetheless you were there when it happened and you know with deep personal testimony the holy spirit is filling you utterance let your utterance speak through us lord jesus This is the gift of tongues. Okay, so on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit falls. The Lord has moved from one house to another house. What is the point of the second house? Believe it or not, it's the same of the first house, which is to make a broken world whole. With the first house, through you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. Through this house, go into all the nation nations and preach the gospel baptize them repent make disciples until we get to the end of the story and every tribe every kindred is there worshiping gathered around the throne this is why you need the power of the holy ghost in your life so you can be transformed you see I'm almost done. Two ways. You can cope your way to God. And this is where you finally get to your life where your self-discipline gets better. You know, when you're a teenager, self-discipline is really, really hard. And then, you know, you start, you know, getting grown. (laughs) As we like to say, you're all grown up now. You start getting some self-discipline. You start learning not to lose your temper quite so fast and say everything you think. You know, a fool speaks all that's in his mind, the Bible says. And you start learning. You start coping your way to God. And then when you get old like me, it's actually pretty easy to be good. That's funny and nobody laughed. Remember the story of the preacher who the guy, young man came to him and said, I can't wait till I'm old so I won't be tempted. And the next day he was at the, he, he was at the store and he had to break a hundred and the lady at the cashier, instead of giving him 10 ones, she gave him 10 one hundreds. And he stood there with a thousand dollars in his hand. And all he could think of is that young preacher saying, I can't wait till I get old and where I'm not tempted anymore. (laughs) Um, That's coping your way to God. You get more and more organized. You cope your way to God. You're never really transformed. You still want the things of the world. You just don't let yourself look anymore. 
This is not what God had planned for you. Your testimony cannot be one of your strength. It has to be a testimony of his strength. We're not looking to cope our way to God. We are looking for this old heart of stone to be taken out of us. We want to be transformed where we no longer want the things of this world. Instead, we want spiritual intimacy. We want relationship depth. We want the things of God and not the things of this world. How is that going to happen? It's going to happen through the power of the Holy Ghost in your life. All right, I'm almost done. I want to I very quickly encourage those of you who you've been perhaps serving the Lord for a while and you, you are uncertain whether or not um, you have ever uh, spoken in a heavenly language or what we would call utterance. You're unsure if you've ever spoken in that way. Uh, I, I want to I say to you, first of all, that it is the biblical method whereby a transformation a personal testimony of transformation happens in your life where you go to a whole nother level of discipleship with the Lord, a whole nother level of confidence. You need the transformation of the utterance. Now, uh, the Bible calls this tongue you speak utterance. That's that's uh, the language we use. Um, it Tongues is not the Holy Ghost. Tongues is a sign of the Holy Ghost. It's not the only sign of the Holy Ghost, but it is one of the signs of the Holy Ghost. And so it can be really difficult for people to understand that, you know, they, they've been serving the Lord for a while and they're like, well, don't, you know, I feel like the Lord is working on me. What's with the, this whole utterance thing? Well, I'm going to tell you, uh, it is your surrender to God and it is his sign to you that he has taken up residence in your heart and in your life. Stand with me all across the house right now. I, I want to pray. I did this in the 9 a.m. service and we just had people who uh, had never, they, 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 they either had never spoken with spirit utterance or they had um, or, or they were uncertain if they had we had probably five six people step out because uh, I asked to pray for them and we had three people this morning uh, speak in a heavenly language right here in this altar in the 9 a.m. service and I'm, I'm thankful for that um, I, I want to say to all of you if you've never had this experience I, I want to pray for you um, it may not happen in a moment. Some people can get to that place of faith really fast, and some of us can't. I, it wasn't fast for me. I sought the Lord for a while. My mother, my sainted mother, who was so holy, when she walks, her feet don't even touch the ground. If you actually watch her walk, you'll just see a cloud at her feet. She's not even touching the ground when she walks. She sought the Holy Ghost for two years two years. So I don't want you to feel a sense of defeat or a sense of failure if you have not received this gift um, of utterance in your life. Um, I don't want you to feel that way because uh, remember some of the most powerful people chosen by God to start this thing off, they had to tarry for 10 days and that was after three and a half years of 24-7 with Jesus. They still had to tarry for 10 days. So I don't want you to, I don't want you to feel as though you've in some way failed or um, you in, in some way have missed out or that don't, don't, don't confuse this and make it more difficult. I simply want you to believe that God will gift you biblical utterance and with stammering lips and another tongue, you will speak 
uh, as a personal testimony. Uh, before, before we do anything else, let's just pray that the Lord would let this house be an outpouring of His, a place of outpouring of His Holy Spirit. Lord, we want this church to be a place where there is an outpouring of the Holy Ghost. Thank you for listening to First Church Charlotte. If this podcast has blessed you, please rate it with four or five stars. By doing so, you will help others find our free podcast and bless them. If you're in the Charlotte, North Carolina area, come worship with us at 4929 North Sharon Amity Road. For information about service times, church ministries, and so much more, visit us online at firstchurchclt.com. If you would like to help support our efforts, please text GIVE to 704-445-5353. We pray God's richest blessings to you. Come worship with us.